0: So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Had get 30 30 you get 30, but get 20 20 20 to get 20 20 to get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month. Sold. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Hello everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History. It is the 21st of October. That is, of course, Trafalgar Day. It's the anniversary of one of the greatest sea battles in history. A name imprinted on the naval history, not just at Britain, but the world. Trafalgar is still so resonant today. Pubs and public spaces are still named after it around Britain and its former empire. It was a battle of annihilation that became, like Hannibal's victory at Cannae, an obsession with subsequent naval strategists and thinkers and authors, not just British, but American and and Japanese as well. I think for the public, it's the one naval battle that we keep in our memory. Kibron Bay, sadly, Jutland, Graveline, the Saints, even the Battle of Nile are now, well, I think, pretty much forgotten. But Trafalgar endures. Trafalgar endures, not just because of its association with famous place names, but because I think it was such a crushing victory that has neatly come to symbolize the start of a period of British naval domination of the world's oceans. I would argue that period of domination began somewhat earlier, but in the public mind I think that Trafalgar is in many ways a starting point. And of course, you've got the heroic death of one of the most famous Britons who has ever lived, Vice Admiral. Lord Horatio Nelson, mortally wounded, on the court deck of HMS Victory, a quarterdeck deck which survives on a ship which survives to this day, as you may have heard mentioned on this podcast once or twice, then taken below and died a few hours later. So, let's talk about what happened that terrible day in 1805. This, everybody, I'm afraid, is another one of my storytelling podcasts where I do the talking I'm very lucky to have clips from Andrew Baines, a brilliant creator at HMS Victory, a man who I interviewed a couple of years ago for the anniversary. So we're using a few of his clips and then I'll tell the rest of the story. I'm going to tell you what happened and I'll try and tell you why it mattered as well. All that is coming up. Before though, before you listen to it, you've got to check out Our big Trafalgar season on History Hit TV. We got hours and hours of documentaries on Napoleonic Wars and French Revolutionary Wars. But this year we've also got a program on Nelson's Navy that I've just finished. I'm really, really proud of it. It's one of the best things I've done History Hit. Our ambition goes up every time, and this is pretty cool. We fired cannons. We went on tall ships. Went to wonderful Chatham Dockyard and hung out in some nice naval pubs. So that is launched, as well as another episode in our Rise of series. We have the Rise of Hannibal, Rise of Stalin. Now we've got the rise of napoleon as well so check all that out on history hit tv i've got a code for you yeah i've got a code if you use the code trafalgar trafalgar you get 50 percent off your first three months so you're going to be watching history hit until christmas paying half price i mean get involved folks so use the code trafalgar head over to historyhit.tv. but in the meantime here is me and andrew baines talking about that fateful battle
2: Vice Admiral, Lord Collingwood, to the Honourable General Fox, Lieutenant Governor of Gibraltar. Urialis, at sea, 22nd of October, 1805. Sir, yesterday a battle was fought by His Majesty's Fleet with the combined fleets of Spain and France, which will stand recorded as one of the most decisive and brilliant that ever distinguished the British Navy.
1: Those are the words of Vice-Admiral Cuthbert Collingwood. He had been second in command on the morning of Trafalgar, but as news of the death of the Commander-in-Chief, Horatio Nelson, reached him, he assumed overall command of the British fleet. He is talking about the Battle of Trafalgar. Yes, this podcast, I'm afraid, begins with a gigantic spoiler. This tremendous battle, as Collingwood called it, was a decisive British victory. A victory the likes of which had never really been seen before, certainly in the age of Anglo-French competition, the long 18th century, the age of sail. The majority of the enemy fleet, 18 battleships, had been captured or destroyed. More enemy battleships would fall into British hands during mopping up operations, and some of the ships that escaped safely were almost beyond repair. Most of the enemy's admirals, were now prisoners of the British, captured, or they were killed or mortally wounded. It was the most decisive of naval victories and one that would have an important impact on the course of the Napoleonic Wars. But it's a victory, in, as Collingwood refers to in that message, a victory that's become associated perhaps with one man, somewhat unfairly given the contribution of so many others. And that man was Vice Admiral Lord Horatio Nelson, a man who'd shot to fame through daring naval actions and the French Revolutionary Napoleonic Wars. At the Battle of Cape St Vincent on Valentine's Day, he'd captured not just one but two enemy ships, using one as a bridge to get to the other. He had wiped out Napoleon's fleet supporting him during his invasion of Egypt in the late 1790s. He had neutralised, destroyed the Danish fleet, a powerful fleet that could be turned by Napoleon for use against Britain. He'd wiped that out in the Battle of Copenhagen. He was the man that Britain looked to as it faced its most dangerous continental enemy in generations, Napoleon Bonaparte. He was vain. He was controversial. He was keenly aware of his own brand. He was in many ways a very modern celebrity, but he was also a superlative sailor, a remarkable leader of men, a great diplomat, as we'll see, a brilliant tactician. Trafalgar was the climax of quite an extraordinary campaign. You may have heard that Trafalgar saved Britain from invasion. It actually didn't do that, not in the short term anyway. Napoleon in 1805 had wanted to invade Britain. And with his Spanish allies, he believed that he could achieve like so many continental would be conquerors who look out across the narrows at the Straits of Dover, you think, how hard can it be to get across there? This is ridiculous. Napoleon looked out across there and thought that with his fleet, with that of his Spanish allies, he could achieve local superiority just long enough. Sounds a bit like Hitler in 1940 just long enough to get his battle hardened professionals across the Channel, march them into London and topple the regime of George III as he toppled so many European monarchs on its path to supreme power in Europe. And so Napoleon, with this lack of understanding about the nature of naval warfare, came up with a completely impractical plan, absolutely bonkers plan. It's so complicated, I'm not even going to try and talk you through it. Just suffice to say, various squadrons left various ports around France and Spain. We're talking down in the Mediterranean, we're talking the Atlantic coast, all over the place. It was hoped that all of these squadrons could leave their ports, sail to the Caribbean, yes, join forces, and then double back double back to Europe, overwhelm the British force in the Channel, and ferry the invasion fleet across. He thought that if all those forces worked in unison, he'd have something like 50 battleships, an absolutely extraordinary number of battleships, with which he could overwhelm even Britannia's battleships. The plan, given that never had any chance of working at all, went fairly well, actually. Nelson was given a slip by a French admiral, Villeneuve, out of Toulon in southern France. He managed to slide through the Balearic Islands, past Ibiza and Menorca and all the rest of it, and did get to the Caribbean, met up with various other units, came back, and then off Cape Finisterre in northern Spain, fought a strange kind of battle, a stalemated battle almost, on the 22nd of July 1805, against a British force under Admiral Calder. Now, that's a battle no one's ever heard of, but that battle... Saved Britain from invasion. Because Villeneuve, after the sort of bloody nose he received, slightly indecisive battle, he decided to retreat to Spain, lick his wounds, and wait for kind of reinforcements. This was not the Battle of Annihilation the Brits wanted, but it was a battle that stopped this big combined fleet arriving in the Channel. So, spare a thought always for Calder and the Battle of Finisterre. But Napoleon was absolutely furious. He wanted to know why his navy had not ended up in the Channel. And he was also getting bored. Central Europe was getting ever more dangerous for Napoleon. The Russian Empire and the Austrian Empire were moving towards an alliance funded by British gold to move against Napoleon. He couldn't be sitting with his army of invasion on the northwest coast of France while his enemies moved against him in Central Europe. So he packed up camp and headed towards the Austrians. The invasion scare was basically over, even though most people in Britain had no idea this was happening. As part of that new strategy, Napoleon got in touch with Admiral Villeneuve, now sitting down in Spain, and told him to head round to Italy to create a diversion to keep the Austrians busy and guessing in Italy, while Napoleon struck straight at Vienna. So, the Franco-Spanish fleet they're going to leave Cadiz and they're going to sail around into the Mediterranean, away from Britain. But never mind, never mind. It's still an important victory. The French and Spanish fleet was large enough. with about 33 battleships, including some of the biggest ships in the world, 35,000 men on board. And they would eventually face a smaller British force, around 27 battleships, and only 20,000 men. Because as you'll hear, the Brits and the Allies had quite a different approaches to fighting at sea. The French and Spanish had some decent ships. The Spanish ships in particular were very good. They had some modern mechanisms for firing their guns. But they both had a key problem in that their crews were less experienced, less disciplined, less battle-hardened, less trained than the British crews. The British had been engaging in blockade, that is, forcing the French and Spanish to stay in their ports whilst the British tacked up and down outside their ports, which means the British sailors were so used to their ships. They were at sea for months and months on end, whereas the Spanish and French had to train up landsmen, new recruits, sitting in harbour teaching them the ropes when nothing can ever prepare you for what life is like actually out at sea facing heavy weather or firing your cannon for real with real ammunition at targets. Admiral Villeneuve commented, it's very distressing to see such fine and powerful ships Manned with herdsmen and beggars, and having such a small number of seamen. He was particularly talking about his Spanish allies, but the French ships were undermanned as well. And as a result, the French and Spanish came up with an interesting strategy for how to deal with the British superiority in gunnery and seamanship. And that is, they would seek a close quarters battle, they would seek a bloodbath they would bring their ships as close as possible to British, grapple them, lash them to the sides of the French and Spanish ships, and then use soldiers on board their ships in big numbers to flood across the British decks and seize them as prizes. This meant they wanted to fight a battle at close quarters, not standing off, having pot shots at each other with artillery. And the interesting thing is, what guaranteed that Trug would be such a terrible battle, is that's exactly the strategy that Nelson also wanted to pursue. Because Nelson, he didn't just want a victory, He didn't just want to break up this combined fleet, he wanted its complete destruction, and that meant getting up close and pulverising it, not with borders, not with people swinging across on ropes with pistols and swords, but it meant pulverising it with big heavy guns at point-blank range. Before leaving London to take command of the British fleet blockading the combined fleet in Cadiz, Nelson had told government ministers it is an annihilation the country wants. He said he was going to fight a battle that would bring Bonaparte to his marrow bones. I don't even know what that means, but it sounds pretty destructive. Just before he left on September the 12th, 1805, he went to see Lord Castlereagh, the Secretary of State at Downing Street. Fascinating, I love this moment. He met Sir Arthur Wellesley, the future Duke of Wellington, in the waiting room. They had a chat. No one knows what they said. But years later, Wellington would say he didn't think he ever had a more interesting conversation, that Nelson was really a very superior man. Now, that's a lot coming from Wellington, because let me tell you, it's a great expression about Wellington. He had a social disdain for his intellectual equals, an intellectual disdain for his social equals, right? And because he was therefore very posh and very clever. He basically hated everyone. So the fact he thought Nelson was amazing is fascinating. If I could have been a fly on the wall of any conversation in history, it may well have been that one. Anyway, after chatting with Wellesley, he went down to Portsmouth. He put to sea on the 15th of September 1805 on the mighty three-decker battleship, HMS Victory. Let's hear now from Andrew Baines, curator of HMS Victory, talking about Nelson and that ship
0: nelson's presence and association with victory really begins towards the end of the 18th century victory is the flagship of an admiral called john Jarvis. a very famous battle the battle of cape st vincent immediately after that battle john Jarvis writes about victory being badly decayed and every time somebody steps off the ladder above his deck the whole ship shakes and you can see the sea through the seams and um it really recommends that she should go for breaking up. So um, Nelson's association with Victory was almost a very, very brief one.
1: HMS Victory was and is an extraordinary ship. Massive 32-pound guns on the lower deck, firing a 32-pound cannonball, but new carronades on the upper deck, very light Very powerful guns, which is why you can mount them so high up in the ship's superstructure. From the Caron Company near Glasgow, these are the product of Britain's burgeoning industrial revolution. The Navy is one of the great customers of British industry, so it's driving. Like the Americans with the microprocessors and the developments of the 20th century, the American Department of Defence, essential as a customer, as someone to inject money into this new system, the Navy was doing that in 19th century, 18th century Britain. British gunpowder was better. Saltpeter was coming mainly from India. It was the best supply in the world. They say it was about 20% more efficient than the French and Spanish powder. The guns were better, as well as the Caron factory. The Walker Iron Foundry was world-leading, so British guns were less likely to burst. The Walker Iron Factory was not just making cannon for the Royal Navy. It was trying to make things like the first iron bridges for the rest of Britain. The cannon also had flintlock firing mechanisms on the cannon. You didn't have to wait for a slow match, like a fuse burning down. You could instantly fire. So the gap between aiming and firing was instantaneous. So even when the ship was rolling, you could actually shoot at the right time. Whereas two of the French and Spanish guns, you set the fuse running. And by the time the cannon actually fired, the ship was pointing in a different direction. Let's see if Andrew Baines again talking about the three-deckers of Nelson's Navy.
0: The three-decker at the time is the most complex object built by the human race up until that time. So it's uh, industrially extremely complex. They're extremely expensive to build. They are the absolute pinnacle. There are not very many of them because they are so expensive. They have a firepower unlike anything else afloat. So they give you the opportunity to totally dominate. And people who are at the Battle of Trafalgar, who are serving in the ship, who have seen battle, write about the experience of battle, especially from the, the middle gun deck where you have the lower gun deck below you, you have the guns around you and you have the upper gun deck above you and it is unlike anything they have seen before and in many cases are really able to describe. They write about their inability to describe what it's like to be on these ships in the heat of battle. The downside is they do have a tendency to sail a bit like a haystack. They're not easy to manoeuvre and they're not quick so, Victory, because she's a three-decker and she has a reputation for being a good sailor and a fast ship, that is one of the reasons Nelson picks her.
1: It's worth remembering that HMS Victory, with this over 100 guns on board, was just one of these 28 battleships the British had. Bear in mind, Wellington, the great British general of the time, he would never command more than 100 guns in battle until the Battle of Waterloo. He finally, at the Battle of Waterloo, had a more than 100 guns. But all his battles previous to that, all through India, all through Portugal, Spain, southern France. He never had 100 cannon in one battle. So the British fleet at Trafalgar has got multiples of the firepower that Wellington was able to unleash on a battlefield. That is the scale of what is going on here. In fact, Sam Willis, the great historian, friend of the pod, says to me that the firepower in Battle of Waterloo was something like 7% of the firepower from the Battle of Trafalgar. That is how industrial this battle was going to be. HMS Victory had about 800 men on board to work those guns, but also to sail the ship while it was going on. They lived in extraordinary conditions on board 14 inches of space to hang a hammock, four hours on, four hours off, round the clock, on blockade, on passages, sailing down to meet the fleet off Cadiz. Carrying out the extraordinarily complicated task of sailing one of these great ships, but also transforming it in short order into a floating artillery platform, and then drilling the guns perhaps every afternoon in the build up to battle to make sure that those guns could be fired, reloaded, run out, and fired again as quickly as possible. And that rapidity of fire, that weight of fire, would prove decisive. Let's hear from Andrew Baines again.
0: Nelson's not that interested in sitting around. He's already been doing it for two years, two and a half years almost, in the Mediterranean. It's not terribly exciting. He wants a battle of annihilation. He doesn't want a a marginal victory. One or two ships captured isn't going to be enough. Giving Villeneuve the opportunity to get back into port is not going to be enough. He wants to destroy him. So to do that, he's 50 miles away and he's relying on a chain of frigates, small, single deck ships in many ways the workhorse of the fleet to keep him up to date they form a signaling chain if you like they're stationed from horizon to horizon so they can just see one another and they will signal from cadiz all the way out to nelson in victory and keep him up to date with what is happening that's their role so his intention is to monitor what's happening and when the opportunity presents itself lure the french and spanish fleet to where he wants it and then fall upon them and destroy them.
1: Nelson had a particular plan for fighting this battle. As I said earlier, he wanted a battle of annihilation, and that meant that the long, sort of slightly more glacial battles that had marked many of the encounters of the 18th century, 17th century up to this point, where the two lines of ships would just fire at each other in all stately ways sort of grinding along each other, exchanging cannon fire, Nelson was going to abandon that completely, jettison it completely. He said to a friend before leaving London, I would go at them at once if I can and he said, I'll go at them about a third of the way down their line from their leading ship. What do you think of it? I'll tell you what I think of it. I think it will surprise and confound the enemy. They won't know what I'm about. It will bring forward a pell-mell battle, and that is what I want. A pell-mell battle. So he knows he's going to be outnumbered, and by sailing his fleet in two lines one towards the centre of the enemy fleet, one towards the rear, he thinks he can overwhelm those portions of the Franco-Spanish line before the head of this Allied line is able to turn around and come to their rescue. So he can achieve local superiority, crush the enemy, and then deal with any latecomers. He doesn't mind the fact that he's going to be temporarily outnumbered while he crashes into the enemy line in his columns because he knows his men are better seamen, they're better trained. He also knows that British ships are built for bludgeoning French ships to death. They're stronger, they're squatter, they're built for blockade, they're beasts, but they're built for battle. The French ships are lighter, they're faster, beautiful sailing ships. They're designed for convoy protection, trade protection, heading out to Great sugar plantations of the Caribbean and India, and escorting those rich merchant ships back. The British ships are built for a pell mell battle. And so he waits, he waits outside Cadiz, and the Allies come. The French and Spanish fleet, Villeneuve, desperate to prove to Napoleon the utility of of the navy, worrying that he's about to be replaced as commander in chief, leaves Cadiz and heads towards the Mediterranean to discharge his orders. Here's Nelson's diary on the 20th of October, 1805. It's available as an audiobook on History at TV, by the way. Go and get your subscription at historyhit.tv. Here's what he wrote in his diary.
2: Horatio Nelson's private diary. Sunday, October 20th, 1805. Fresh breezes south-southwest and rainy. Communicated with Phoebe, Defence and Colossus, who saw near 40 sail of ships of war outside of Cadiz yesterday evening. But the wind being southerly, they could not get to the mouth of the straits. We were between Trafalgar and Cape Spartel. The frigates made the signal that they saw nine sail outside the harbour, gave the frigates instructions for their guidance, and placed Defence, Colossus and Mars between me and the frigates. At noon... Fresh gales and heavy rain. Cadiz, northeast, nine leagues. In the afternoon, Captain Blackwood telegraphed that the enemy seemed determined to go to the westward, and that they shall not do if in the power of Nelson and Bronte to prevent them. At five, telegraphed Captain B that I relied upon his keeping sight of the enemy. At six o'clock, Nyad made the signal for 31 sail of the enemy north-northeast. The frigates and lookout ships kept sight of the enemy most admirably all night, and
1: told me by signals which tack they were upon. That was Nelson's private diary, but it wasn't just Nelson that was writing things down. We're very lucky to have lots of diaries and accounts of the battle. One from an able seaman, not an officer, just a member of the crew. An able seaman on board the Neptune called James Martin, he wrote looking back on that night. Now the moment was fast approaching, which was to decide whether the boasted heroism of France and Spain or the genuine valour of free born Britons was to rule the main. Just before dawn, on the twenty first of october, eighteen fifteen, a man with the unfortunate nickname of Nasty Face, William Nasty Face Robinson, was on board the Revenge, one of the British ships, and he recalls that a main topmastman called down to the deck and said he could see sails on the starboard bow. The crew rushed to sea, and there says Nasty Face, He said there was a forest of masts rising from the ocean. The Allied fleet, the combined fleet of Spain and France, was at sea. And at 6am, Nelson gave the order to prepare for battle. The ships had to clear for action at this point. Drums beat to quarters. Sailors would stuff their hammock in nets along the sides of the ships to try and soak up a bit of enemy fire when it came in. Yards were chained up, those great big spars, the things the sails hang off. They were tied to the mast with chains so they were more likely to stay up in battle. Everything was wetted. The decks were wetted, covered with water to try and suppress fire. Partitions were moved from the ships down below decks. Officers had cabins, different partitions. They were all taken out. Officers' furniture, was removed they were put in boats to tow behind the ships 14 men gathered around a 32 pounder they had to serve two guns each one on either side the port and starboard sides, starboard and the larboard sides they had to rush between them Boys started to bring powder to the guns from the powder room, which is deep, the lowest possible point of the ship, below the waterline, far away from where it might get in trouble, might get hit by a cannonball or a spark would occur. They had to keep the ship's gunpowder as low as possible in the ship. And so, from that powder room, where no light was allowed, there were windows and lanterns shone through the windows to shed light on what the gunners were doing inside the powder room. Those gunners prepared cartridges, they scooped out powder, they measured the powder, then they gave it to so called powder monkeys. These young boys, some as young as 10 years old, who would run and deliver it to the cannon. So there was never too much powder on deck at any time, so there could never be a, a negligent explosion on the gun deck that could prove disastrous. Carpenters and their mates prepared plugs and tools to make sure that cannonballs coming through the sides of the ship wouldn't let too much water in. Deep down below, quite near the powder room, surgeons sharpened their saws and prepared for the flood of casualties that everyone knew was to come. Some of the more agile sailors, the more experienced sailors took their position, not by the guns, but up in the rigging with spare rope and tools to make sure that as rigging was cut, sliced by flying cannonballs and projectiles, they would be able to make running repairs. I presume the men were terrified of what was to come, some would have been in battle before, but there was certainly excitement as well. We know that there was excitement from the accounts written at the time. Some had scrawled death or victory on a cannon, and there was also the prospect of prize money. The British sailors weren't just motivated, you might be surprised to learn for a great love of their parliamentary system, of their of their green and pleasant land. They were also motivated by cash. If you captured enemy ships, you got paid. Glory and money a powerful combination. Aboard the ships were people like John Franklin, the future Arctic explorer. He was a midshipman on the Bellerophon. There are many others. There's a particularly moving note that I always think about when it comes to Trafalgar Day. Captain Duff of the Mars. His son Norwich was on board, and three other young men who were his friends. They were sent down, but he sent them down below. It's very common to take your son to see at this so time, give him a leg up on the naval ladder. But he sent him down below where it's a bit safer, and he wrote... A note to his wife. My dearest Sophia, I've just done tell you we're going to action with the combined fleet. I hope and trust in God that we shall all behave as becomes us, and that I may yet have the happiness of taking my beloved wife and children in my arms. Norwich is quite well and happy. I have, however, ordered him off the quarterdeck. Yours ever and most truly, George Duff. That letter would eventually reach his wife, accompanying a letter from their son, Norwich, who reported that the following day after the battle... He'd watched as his father was buried at sea, a casualty of Trafalgar. Once the ships were cleared fraction, the British made for the enemy. Unusually, they attacked under full sail great mountains of canvas, something like an acre of sail, to catch the very light winds of that morning. Nelson was desperate to speed up the clash, to bring things to the decisive melee. And although many more sails meant much more confusion, you couldn't read signals from ships and the sails were always in the way, Nelson didn't mind. He'd gone through the plan before, very, very clearly with his captains. Once the ships were set off towards the enemy, there wasn't much Nelson or Collingwood could do about it anyway. Much better to get there fast engage the enemy and fight it out in the way that Nelson wanted this battle to be fought. The plan was simply to break their line, break it into three different parts and then defeat them in detail. Ignore the front of the enemy fleet, attack the centre and rear and achieve that local superiority. Encircle the centre and rear before the front ships could come back and rescue them. If anything was unclear, Nelson said, no captain can do very wrong if he places his ship alongside that of the enemy. Let's hear from Andrew Baines again.
0: When the sun rises on the morning of October 21st, the French and Spanish fleet is stretched out in a line about five miles long, and it's um, slightly concave, this line, so it's further away in the middle than it is at the end. And Nelson is sailing in two lines directly towards it, and that means the 33 ships of the French and Spanish fleet can all fire at the two leading ships of the british fleet so nelson in victory and his number two cuthbert collingwood in royal sovereign know they're going to be exposed to fairly withering fire for quite a long time when they come in range of the enemy and because the guns of a line of battleship are mounted on the broadside, on the side of the ship they are not going to be able to return fire because they are head on to the enemy so it's only when they are able to punch through the line and then turn and fall upon individual ships that they will be able to return fire and that's the risk it exposes you to an awful lot of fire for quite a long time and that risk is magnified on october the 21st because the winds are very squally they're quite light and victory with nelson and royal sovereign with um, Collingwood are closing on the enemy at about a walking pace so victory's under fire for well over 40 minutes before she's able to return fire with a reasonable degree of force and nelson there's only one way he knows how to lead and that's from the front so he's out in front with victory at the head of his line collingwood in royal sovereign is a little way ahead of him actually and he's the first to smash through the french line but nelson and Hardy, his captain on victory and the sailors of victory, just really have to sit and wait as she painfully moves towards the enemy.
1: This is the moment as the British are slowly coasting towards this massive French and Spanish fleet. This is the moment when there had been time for contemplation. It must have been so weird. You're advancing into battle at such slow speed. There have been plenty of time for demons, I think, and terror. There was also plenty of time to look at the enemy fleet. It was a massive concentration of naval might. In the French and Spanish fleet, there was the world's most powerful warship, the Santissima Trinidad, the only four-decker in the world, guns on four enclosed decks, extraordinarily ambitious. It was painted gleaming white with red stripes donating each gun deck. A massive, massive carving sculpture, sort of gargantuan carving at the bows of the Holy Trinity, carrying 140 guns and with 400 sailors on board ready to jump down the decks of any enemy that temerities come alongside. The British would have had plenty of time to look at that as they advanced about two miles an hour, walking pace towards the enemy. And HMS Victory wasn't the quickest sailor in the world, to be honest. Other ships threatened to overtake it. Nelson, at one point, got onto the stern of Victory and shouted in particular, Neptune, take in your studding sails and drop a stern. I shall break the line myself. He was determined to lead his line into battle. Around about this time, Nelson went below and wrote in his private diary. He wrote down a prayer.
2: May the great God whom I worship grant to my country and for the benefit of Europe in general a great and glorious victory, and may no misconduct in anyone tarnish it, and may humanity, after victory, be the predominant feature in the British fleet. For myself, individually, I commit my life to him who made me, and may his blessing light upon my endeavours for serving my country faithfully. To him, I resign myself and the just cause which is entrusted to me to
1: defend. Amen. 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 I must say that reads rather well, but that's entirely deliberate. Nelson knew that one day that diary, that prayer would be made public. And so the mention of Europe, for example, is very particular. The fact he's fighting on behalf of Europe. He's a keen coalition builder. He's a keen diplomat, even at this moment of crisis. While Nelson was writing his prayers, the men were piped to dinner. They were given some food. John Brown was a young able seaman from Ireland. He was on HMS Street and he said they ate a bit of raw pork. And they got given half a pint of wine, which I'm sure they appreciated very much. Then they busied themselves attaching Union Jacks, anything they could find, so the ship would be identifiable in the melee to come. It was likely that flags would be shot away, mast rigging brought down. So anything that could support a little Union Jack to tell a friendly ship not to give it a broadside would be very important. At about 11.45 in the morning, Nelson made his famous flag signal, England expects that every man will do his duty. In fact, he'd ordered his flag officer to say England confides that every man will do his duty. But he said, be quick, because I'm in a hurry. And so his flag officer said, well, if you'll let me substitute expects for confines, it can be very quick. So Nelson said, that'll do, make it directly. There were three cheers from every ship a roar that would have reached the enemy. And then he flew a signal that's less famous, but even more important, the last signal that he left flying, which is simply engage the enemy more closely. That was basically Nelson's last instruction to his fleet during the Battle of Trafalgar. The French, for their part, paraded the Imperial eagles and shouted, Vive l'Empereur. the Spanish cheered themselves hoarse for their king as well. And then, it was a matter of waiting for the ranges to close. There was not enough wind. There just wasn't enough wind. Nelson's plan was extremely risky. If the absolute worst had happened, and often did happen in these waters, that the wind had changed direction, Nelson's front few ships, like Collingwood's Royal Sovereign or his victory, both leading their respective columns towards the enemy, they would have become completely isolated. They'd have been dismasted hulks, blasted by the entire enemy fleet. It is a very, very risky plan, but the wind just about held up. But Lieutenant Humphrey Senhouse on HMS Conqueror put it better than I can. An enemy of equal spirit and equal ability in seamanship and the practice of gunnery would have annihilated our ships one after the other in detail, carried slowly on as they were in this instance, only by heavy swell and light airs. And he gets the heart of it. This plan that Nelson's come up with is predicated on the idea that the British ships can survive what the French and Spanish throw at them, because the French and Spanish gunnery will be too poor to destroy them in the approach. Would Nelson be right? Let's see. The French and Spanish line opened fire around about noon. They had several ranging shots, and then one ship put a cannonball right through Victory's main to Gallant Sail. Everyone says there was a pause. And then, after about 30 seconds five or six French and Spanish ships opened up with full broadsides. A massive discharge of all the cannon down the side of their ships. Perhaps a tonne, tonne and a half of cannonballs blasting out towards the British ships. Now remember, ships in this period, you fire broadsides. Your cannon are all arrayed along the side of your ships. So you fire at 90 degrees to the direction you travel. So Nelson, leading in HMS Victory, Collingwood in Royal Sovereign, leading their two columns. They can't really fire forward at the enemy ships. They're pretty much helpless. But... When they get amongst the ships, it'll be a different story. The French and Spanish, therefore, had to do everything they could to prevent the British from from getting closer, to dismast them, disable them, leave them floating hulks, and they fired chain shot, they fired bar shot, they fired cannonballs joined by a bar in between that boomerang through the air and slice through ropes and sails and halyards and things, disabling the British and stopping them dead. But there were big Atlantic rollers, big waves, and that made the aiming hard. Then smoke blind them, it was very light winds. So suddenly smoke from all these cannons blinded them. So their accuracy was poor, and HMS victory came ever closer to the Allied line. But for about 40 minutes, victory was under fire. A grim 40 minutes from ships like Santissima Trinidad, the massive battleship Redoutable, and the French Neptune. Annoyingly, the Spanish, French, and Brits all have a Neptune pleasant at the Battle of Trafalgar, but I won't confuse things. We know from the other ships how grim this period was. On board the Tonant, a British ship, a band were playing a particular hit that everyone loved at the time. The Gallic Fleet Approaches Nigh, Boys popular song from the time when from about 100 yards from the allied fleet as the band reached a crescendo a 40 pound cannonball killed two of the bandsmen so the british ships are taking casualties they're taking damage from the combined fleet victory takes a particular battering a number of her crew are killed and wounded her wheel is shot away she had to be steered by attila below decks all before she's able to respond to the French and Spanish fire. The first person killed is possibly a cannonball which strikes Nelson's secretary, John Scott, to cut him in two. His blood is still on Nelson's uniform, which you can go and see in Portsmouth. His body was unceremoniously dumped overboard. Hardy's clerk took over, so taking instructions from the Admiral and his captain, Captain Hardy's clerk, who was in command of HMS Victory, Nelson's in command of the whole fleet. He too was almost immediately killed. Another cannonball cut down eight Marines, eight Royal Marines who were waiting on the poop deck. Again, other ships experienced a similar thing as they got closer. The revenge was under fire for some time before she could reply. Down in the dark and low deck, remember Nasty Face Robinson, he writes that many of our men thought it was hard, the firing should be all on one side, and became impatient to return the compliment. But his captain, who was Captain Mawson, a steady North Yorkshireman, made his wishes very clear. He said, We shall want all our shot when we get close in, i.e. don't waste your cannonballs. Never mind their fire. When I fire a carronade from the quarterdeck, that'll be a signal for you to begin, and I know you'll do your duty as Englishmen. Back on HMS Victory, one cannonball passed between Nelson and Captain Hardy, actually tore the buckles off Hardy's shoe. They both look at each other, they can't believe they're uninjured, and Nelson observed, this is too warm work to last long. By the time HMS Victory reached the French and Spanish line, There were 50 casualties, maybe 20 dead, 30 wounded. And now, as they get closer, this is where Nelson's aim becomes very clear. He wants to decapitate the Allied line. He wants to go for the French flagship Beausseinshaw and destroy it. And actually, Victory's been heading for the wrong ship. It's been heading for the massive Spanish four-decker Santissima Trinidad, and only when the French and Spanish break out their colours, their French and Spanish flags, does Victory realise their mistake, and Nelson knows a handbrake turn. He heads straight for bowson shore. The French ships don't want to let the British break their line. They want to precipitate a battle where you sail alongside each other, broadside to broadside. They do not want the British ships breaking through their line. And so they pack themselves so tightly together that the bowsprit of one is actually grazing Bowson-Chur's stern. The back of the bosun shore he does not want to let victory through the gap but a small gap does open up as happens at sea between the bosun shore and the redoutable ship astern hardy asks to go for the gap and nelson says whichever you like he says to hardy take your choice and nelson seals his own fate with that order victory has been double or even triple-shotted. It's cannon waiting silently for that first gigantic broadside, over 50 guns on one broadside, cannonballs, but also case shot, great cases full of musket balls that will turn the guns into giant shotguns, projectiles flying out in all directions when they get close enough to be fired. And as victory breaks through that French and Spanish lines. It has survived the firestorm. It gets into the French and Spanish lines and it has its turn to fire its broadside into the stern, into the back of Beaux-Centures. is now the hunted. And with one order, about a tonne and a half of metal, of iron, crashes out from HMS Victory's broadside at almost touching range. 15 or so metres. These projectiles scream out of the side of HMS Victory, travelling the length of Bowson smashing cannons, killing crew, turning the gun decks into a slaughterhouse. Body parts, blood all over the deck. It's a scene of absolute carnage. Andrew Baines takes up the story.
0: The problem we have on Victory is that the next ship astern of Bowson is Redutabh. And she is commanded by Captain Luca, and Luca has very, very thoroughly drilled his men in close quarters fighting and boarding. And Victory and Utar become locked together; their masts and rigging tangle together, and these two ships fall out of the line. And Victory is now really in a very, very precarious position up against this very 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 competent
1: opponent. Right, let's take a break. More coming up on the Battle of Trafalgar after this.
2: Hello, if you're enjoying this podcast, then I know you're going to be fascinated by the new episodes of the History Hit Warfare podcast, from the Punic battles and Cold War confrontations to the Normandy landings and 9/11 we reveal new perspectives on how war has shaped and changed our modern world. I'm your host, James Rogers, and each week, twice a week, I team up with fellow historians, military veterans, journalists, and experts from around the world to bring you inspiring leaders. If the crossroads had fallen, then what Napoleon would have achieved is he would have severed the communications between the Allied force and the Prussian force and there wouldn't have been a Waterloo. It would have been as simple as that. Revolutionary technologies. At the time the weapons were tested, there was this you know, perception of great risk and great fear during the arms race that meant that these countries disregarded these communities' health and well-being to pursue nuclear weapons instead. And war-defining strategies. It's as though the world is incapable of finding a moderate light presence. It always wants to either swamp the place In trillion-dollar wars, or it wants to have nothing at all to do with it. And in relation to a country like Afghanistan, both approaches are catastrophic. Join us on the History
0: Hit Warfare podcast, where we're on the front line of military history.
2: Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yonaga. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when you use a messaging apps, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high-quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage, add unlimited photos and videos, and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting auraframes.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code DanSnow at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. So Nelson has his melee, but at the moment, victory is by himself. The ships behind him are yet to catch up. And Collingwood, leading the other line of British ships, has the same problem. Collingwood's actually crashed into the French line slightly before victory. Collingwood said to his officers, as they were about to engage the enemy, Now, gentlemen, let us do something today which the world may talk of hereafter. And hereafter, we are talking of it. So he was right. His ship, Royal Sovereign, was briefly alone, like Victory, crashed into the enemy fleet, but it was surrounded by no fewer than six ships that it engaged unaided. Now, Collingwood's ship was the right one for that job because Collingwood had trained his crews to be able to fire three broadsides in three and a half minutes, almost unheard of. It had to be unheard of because. It was surrounded by enemy ships, and it had to suppress them. It had to destroy their ability to fire back. It had to destroy them before it was destroyed. It survived though, it survived, and up came British reinforcements. The Beleira Front went so close to one French ship, the Egler, that the gunners were able to steal each other's ramrods. They were just touching the masts and rigging fell off on top of each other, the sails caught fire, great sheets of flame had to be hacked away by sailors, as the guns fired so close that the wadding would set fire to enemy ships. In fact, some sailors were putting out fires in enemy ships because they were so desperate that they would spread to their own. The captain of the Bellerophon was killed. on sailing mast had his leg chopped off. A fire came very close to the magazine and the ship almost blew up. The French captain was killed as well. He wouldn't want to be a French captain, or any French or Spanish captain, despite... Knowing that they were the underdogs, they fought with exceptional bravery. They were always where the action was hottest, and they took terrible casualties. The proportion of French and Spanish captains killed and wounded was remarkable. This was the battle, actually, ironically, that Villeneuve had wanted too, because the ships were crashing into each other. They were locked, they were entangled in each other, and the Frenchmen were then able to leap across and get a foothold in the Bellerophon. But they were beaten off with cold steel, there was hand-to-hand fighting, at which point the two battered ships drifted apart. Of the 47 men on the Bellerophon's quarterdeck at the start of the battle, only seven remained unwounded. The boatswain Thomas Robinson, had been blown up by a grenade but he staggered downstairs to see the surgeon but the queue was too long so he staggered back on deck to see how he could help and ended up dying of his wounds a week later. The fighting was no less fierce on HMS victory. It was locked together with the French ship Réletabla. My bad luck for the British ship. The crew of the Réletabla had been particularly trained and brought to a level of extraordinary efficiency at boarding enemy ships. The crew had been drilled and drilled and drilled. There were lots of soldiers on board and they are now preparing to launch the attack they'd trained so hard for. They were going to board and seize HMS Victory. Captain Lucas of the Redisabla wrote after the battle, A violent small arms exchange ensued. Our fire became so superior that within 15 minutes we had silenced that of Victory. Her castles were covered with dead and wounded, meaning the slightly raised bits at the fore and aft of HMS Victory. The castles were covered with dead and wounded. They were evacuated and Victory almost completely ceased firing upon us. But boarding proved difficult because of her elevated third battery. "'I ordered the rigging of the great yard to be cut "'and to be carried to serve as a bridge.' So the Red was relying on its musketry, pistols, grenades to clear the top deck of HMS Victory. Victory, however, was firing back with its great guns below, causing carnage on the French ship. Our junior Marine Lieutenant Louis Rotley went down into the gun deck to fetch more Marines to replace the casualties above, and he found the experience astonishing. It's a great description of battle. Every gun was going off. A man should witness battle in a free decker from the middle deck. It beggars all description. It bewilders the senses of sight and hearing. There was fire from above, fire from below. Besides the fire from the deck I was on, guns recoiling with violence, reports louder than thunder, decks heaving, sides straining. I fancied myself in the infernal regions where every man appeared a devil. Lips might move, but orders and hearing were out of the question. Everything was done by signs. He neatly reminds us there that leadership, where it's Nelsons over the whole fleet or the officers of the ship in the heat of battle, is pretty much irrelevant. By the time you're in the heat of battle, it comes down to the training and the endurance of the men. They knew what they were doing. They kept doing it. Even if people wanted to change the plan or give orders, there was no way anyone would have heard them. Captain Hardy and Nelson were on that quarter. They were in the hail of fire. The ship surgeon later said that scarcely a person in the Victory escaped unhurt who was exposed to the enemy's musketry. Nearly every officer on HMS Victory's quarterdeck was hit. And Nelson was hit. It's often said by a sniper, but actually I don't think it was a sniper. It was just a crewman with a musket in the mizzenmast, firing down from about 15 metres range. Nelson was a proud man. He always signed his name, Nelson and Bronte, and that's a bit confusing, but actually the Neapolitan king, the king of southern Italy, gave him a dukedom of Bronte. So he always liked the fact that he was Viscount Nelson and Duke of Bronte. And he was proud of that. He signed his letters that, and he wore as many medals and awards on his uniform. They were replicas. But he was covered in medals, and he would have been recognizable as the smoke cleared. A soldier in the rigging must have spotted this small, famous admiral, shouldered his musket, and fired a two centimeter ball entered Nelson's left shoulder, bringing pieces of his epaulette into the wound with it. It went through Nelson's lung, cut his pulmonary artery, smashed through his backbone, and came to rest under his shoulder blade. He fell. The deck immediately. They've done for me at last, Hardy, he said. My backbone is shot through. Now we shouldn't necessarily take Nelson at his word when it comes to his health. He was a bit hypochondriac. He was convinced he was going to die in Tenerife in 1797 when a musket ball smashed his arm and led to his arm being amputated. And at the Nile, his head was sliced open by a great splinter, and he also announced he was dying then. But this time he was right. There was no hope for him. And he was carried down below, a handkerchief on his face to disguise him, not to dishearten the crew. He was carried deep below to the Orlop deck, where the surgeon could attend to him. Meanwhile, let's see how the battle's going from Andrew Baines.
0: Things are very, very precarious for victory. The men on the deck have been exposed to this fire now for well over an hour on the run, and then as they've smashed through the line. And as well as having trained his men to be sharpshooters, aloft, Luca of the redditab has trained them and has them supplied with... Grenades and these are iron spheres two or three inches across that have a fuse and a detonating charge. And these grenades have been raining down onto Victory's decks to such the, an extent that within a few minutes of Nelson being carried below, Victory's upper decks are almost clear and she has to stop firing. And men from the gun decks come up on deck to try and push back borders that it looks like are going to be coming over from Red Uttar. However, Redoutable's men are so well trained mm. that they continue with the grenades, and the men that have come up from below are driven back below on Victory, and it looks like we're about to be boarded. And indeed, the first of the French boarders are beginning to clamber up onto Victory's forecastle when the ship astern of her in the line, the fighting Temeraire, goes around and comes alongside on the disengaged side of Redoutable, firing. A carronade, the one of the heaviest guns um, that the British fleet has, into the exposed French crew on the decks of Redutab on the bow of Redutab, and then backing that up with a broadside. And less than an hour later, Captain Luca has to surrender. And out of a crew of almost six hundred and fifty men on that French ship, only a hundred of them are left fit. He's got five hundred and fifty men who are killed and wounded. So that gives you an indication of the horrendous punishment they've taken at the hands of Temeraire and also of Victory's broadside guns.
1: It's hard to overstate the drama at this moment. Admiral Nelson has been wounded, carried off the quarterdeck. Victory, the fire from the top deck's basically been suppressed by the fantastic French small arms fire and grenading. And some of the Redoubtable's crew are now boarding Victory, climb onto Victory's anchor. The rest cheered, they prepared to board. At that exact moment, though... The fighting Temeraire came crashing out of the smoke and straight into the Redoubtable's bow. The impact would have knocked many people off their feet, but what followed was far worse. Temeraire had seven 32 pound carronades on the larboard side and left hand side of her upper deck, and her upper deck looked down on Redoubtable's decks. She fired one of the most significant and terrible broadsides in the history of naval warfare. At a range of just metres, a hail, a blizzard of iron, travelling at supersonic speed, tore through the crew of the Redutabla, who had massed gathered to launch themselves onto HMS Victory. It was a shattering moment. Lucas wrote later, It is impossible to describe the carnage produced by the murderous broadside of this ship. More than 200 of our brave men were killed or wounded by it. Now, at the end of the battle, it is true that something like 550 men were killed or wounded, about 300 of them dead, on the Redutabla. That's out of a pre-battle muster of 643. Now, I often think about the Battle of Somme at this point. We think in Britain as this unprecedented time of slaughter, tragedy for the people involved. Well, the Accrington Pals attacked Serre on the first day of the Somme, an infamous part of the assault on that first day. Of 700 of them, they lost 235 killed and 350 wounded in the space of around 20 minutes. That is directly comparable to the casualties suffered by the redoubtable So when we think about the age of industrial slaughter, we shouldn't just think about the battlefields, of the American Civil War, or the Crimea, the Russo-Japanese War, or the First World War. The industrial slaughter is well underway here at the beginning of the 19th century, as these state-of-the-art weapon systems turn a great crowd of men into a mass of killed, wounded, severed limbs and body parts on the bloody deck. Victory had been saved by the arrival of Temeraire. However, there was no saving Admiral Nelson, who lay below. When he arrived below, the surgeon, Beattie, had run up to him. He was covered in blood, he just amputated a limb. There were 30 men in a line waiting to be seen, there were shouts of "Mister Beatty, Mister Beatty, the admiral's here!" But Nelson simply waved him away. He said, "You can do nothing for me. I have but a short time to live. My back is shot through." And he explained to Beatty that he felt a spurt of blood every time his heart beat. He felt a spurt of blood into his chest cavity. They tried to make him comfortable. They lent him against the side of the ship. The ship's reverend padre, a steward, a couple of servants, propped Nelson up, and they fanned him. And they tried to slake his thirst. And they listened to the cheers as enemy ships started to surrender. Captain Hardy came down to report on how the battle was going. He made it clear that enemy ships were surrendering one by one. It was clear the British were winning. Nelson closed his eyes and said, thank God I've done my duty. He asks Hardy to look after his partner, uh, girlfriend, Lady Emma Hamilton, and their child, Horatia. Then he asks Hardy to kiss him. Hardy does so. And he pauses, contemplates, leans down and kisses him again. And Nelson says, who is it? He can't see by that point. And Hardy has to say, it's Hardy. At that point, the captain seems to have a sort of almost breakdown. He's overwhelmed with emotion and he heads up on deck. He never sees Nelson alive again. Nelson passed away at around 4.30 that afternoon. The battle was continuing elsewhere. HMS Colossus would end up losing 200 men killed and wounded. She helped to smash no fewer than three enemy ships she had followed Collingwood in Royal Sovereign into the thick of battle. Colossus probably had the most remarkable performance of any British ship. There's a moment of the battle that, I am it's only confused, has not gone down as one of the legends of British history. HMS Defiance came across the shattered Aigle, now, James Spratt was a young Irishman commanding Defiance's group of boarders. So when it came to boarding enemy ships, they were trained with cutlasses, pistols to uh, fight hand to hand. He was famously one of the best-looking men in the Navy, and he had a charismatic personality to match. He begged the captain of Defiance to let him jump overboard and swim across, as the men had trained to do. Swim across to take the Aegler. He'd trained 50 or 60 boarders so well, he said he knew they could swim like sharks and so the captain said yes and he leapt into the water cutlass in his mouth tomahawk in his belt he clambered onto the stern of the aegler he looked around climbed up through the kind of stern windows and realized that no one had followed him he was completely alone that didn't put him off he charged inside fought his way up to the poop deck and he reportedly showed myself to our ship's crew from the enemy's taffrail and gave them a cheer with my hat on the point of my cutlass at that moment. The Defiance had managed to throw their helm over. They did crash into the Aegler, and his boarders were able to join him on the deck. They fought their way towards the stern where Spratt was fighting the entire ship's company by himself. I mean it's like something out of a bad Errol Flynn movie. But one says he jumped on a halyard, swung along and knocked out three enemy infantrymen that were trying to bayonet him. Then someone aimed a gun at him, he slapped it away with his blade, the bullet hit his leg and shattered his leg. At which point Aegler surrendered, half its crew were casualties. And Spratt swung across back onto his own ship on a rope. His leg actually survived. They didn't amputate his leg. His leg survived. It was covered in maggots a week later. He almost died. But he kept his leg, even though it was three inches longer. It made for one hell of a story. And so always remember James Spratt, folks. At 5.30, a French ship, a keel, exploded. A fire had reached its powder room and it blew up in a gigantic explosion. That really marked the end of the battle. It seemed to take, well, almost literally take the wind out of the sails of the surviving French and Spanish ships. Nelson gambled right. When the unengaged ships had finally managed to tack round, to wear round, to rejoin the battle, their appetite to join that battle was dampened by the fact that the centre and rear of the Spanish and French line had been so comprehensively defeated. So the surviving, unengaged French and Spanish ships decided to stand off and try and head back to Cadiz. the battle lasted about five and a half hours, it was now over. Around 500 Brits had been killed, well over 1,000 wounded. Many of them would die in appalling conditions in the days that followed. 2,000 Frenchmen killed, perhaps around 1,000 Spanish, but 11,000 prisoners were now in British hands. 17 ships were captured, 17 ships captured, one blew up. The previous record for a fleet action in the Age of Sales was at the Battle of the Nile, where Nelson had captured seven ships and destroyed so it was a naval victory unprecedented in its magnitude. 22% of Nelson's captains had been killed, 19% lieutenants and marine officers 18%. So one in five lieutenants, one in five marine commanders killed. Very, very dangerous job. More junior officers had been stationed on the gun decks below and they had been safer down there, protected by the mighty oak hulls. 30%, 30%, one third of the sailing masters, the people particularly concerned with the sails, the rigging of the ship, had been killed or wounded in the British fleet. And the same number, one third of bosuns who were on the foredeck, they'd been killed or wounded as well. That kind of conspicuous leadership it was incredibly dangerous. Nelson's body was placed in a cask of brandy. It was mixed with myrrh as well to preserve it. And then it was lashed to Victory's mainmast and placed under guard, <laughs> much as the men loved their commander. Wouldn't have stopped them having a few drinks, I think, if they could have done. Let's hear now from Collingwood's dispatch that he wrote after the battle. He was wounded himself. Now commander of this fleet, it contains the report of Nelson's death.
2: Our loss has been great in men, but what is irreparable and the cause of universal lamentation is the death of the noble commander-in-chief who died in the arms of victory. I have not yet had any reports from the ship's but have heard that Captains Duff and Cook fell in the action. I have to congratulate you upon the great event and have the honour to be, etc. C. Collingwood.
1: It's fascinating the impact that Nelson's death had. You read the accounts of Collingwood's and charge, who was a personal friend of Nelson's, but the captains who serve under him, but also the ordinary seamen. His death had a profound effect. He had the most extraordinary leadership style and his death touched nearly everyone in that fleet. Gnarled, grizzly seamen breaking down in tears when they heard of the death of their commander. And those gnarled, grizzly sailors would have plenty to worry about in the days that followed. Many of the ships were utterly ruinous. Masts smashed over the side of ships. They were basically floating hulks. And there was an insane storm that blew up on the evening and the days following Trafalgar. It was some of the highest wind speeds ever recorded at that point of history by a nearby weather station on the Spanish coast. And in the aftermath of the storm, Collingwood wrote, The condition of our own ships was such it was very doubtful what would be their fate. I can only say that in my life I never saw such efforts as were made to save the enemy prize ships, and I'd rather fight another battle than pass through such a week that followed it. It was said a further 2,000 men, mostly French and Spanish, were drowned during the storm, and veterans said that surviving the storm was tougher than the battle. Three more Allied ships were lost in that storm, never returned to harbour. By early November, the combined fleet had been practically destroyed. The loss in the battle, loss in the storm, and mopping up Operation November cost the French four more ships at Cape Ortegal. No subsequent British ships were lost, as none had been lost, at Trafalgar. Did Trafalgar matter? It would take ten years to finally and conclusively defeat Napoleon. But the sea matters. The sea was essential even more so in the era before railways and road transport. The sea was the way that you communicate. The sea was the way that you carried heavy goods. You supplied armies. You sent treasure to bribe allies or encourage allies. The economies of the European coast, the Rhine and Danube economies, were dependent on that sea trade. And the Royal Navy could now shut off Europe, shut off Napoleon's conquest from global trade. Millions of consumers were unable now to be accessed by French and Spanish merchant fleets. Millions of tons of raw materials could not arrive in French and Spanish ports. Napoleon, like the Kaiser after him and Hitler, was slowly strangled to death. It might take 10 years, but Britannia's grip on the oceans was decisive. Britain could supply an army in the peninsula when Spain eventually changed sides. British troops could keep Portugal safe and supply a Spanish government that was taking on Napoleon's men in what Napoleon would come to call the Spanish Ulcer, a terrible campaign that helped to break Napoleon's armies. All that was made possible by British command of the seas as troops, reinforcements, supplies, food flooded into Iberia. A help was given to the Russians when Napoleon invaded in 1812 via the Baltic. Napoleon was isolated, cut off and laid siege to in Europe. It might take 10 years, but Trafalgar and the battles that preceded it were decisive. Napoleon did try and build up a fleet, but it was always half-hearted. He built a fleet in the Low Countries, but his professional elite, the naval elite, was dead. They were imprisoned. The best sailors were languishing in British prison hulks. The morale was trashed. Who was going to lead an untested fleet of untested ships down the Scheldt? out of Antwerp, to take on the British fleet in the Channel. It would take a brave man to lead that forlorn hope out to sea. Never again would the French seriously seek to wrest control of the seas from the British. And also Trafalgar served that other important purpose, which is provide inspiration. Naval officers, particularly but not exclusively British, saw Trafalgar as squarely within a tradition of British excellence at sea, of an unflinching determination to take the fight to the enemy, of conspicuous bravery, of the subordination of your ship and your own life to the wider strategic goal. Nelson and Trafalgar would be an example to generations of British seafarers that came subsequently That turned the British Navy into the most dominant maritime force the world has ever seen. It would see the British Navy win victories in the Mediterranean against the Turks and high latitudes. It would see the Navy penetrate deep into the rivers of China and have a huge impact on the shape of the modern world, eventually culminating in the great clashes of the 20th century. King George III wrote a tribute to Nelson that rightly, I think, emphasized this the example of his service and leadership over the long term. And anyone with a passing familiarity of the Royal Navy today, knows that the animating principle of Trafalgar and Nelson's life live on. Here's what George III had to say. I receive with
2: particular satisfaction the congratulations of my loyal city of London on the late, glorious and decisive victory obtained under the blessing of God by my fleet, commanded by the late Lord Viscount Nelson, over the combined force of France and Spain. The skill and intrepidity of my officers and seamen were never more conspicuous than on this important occasion. The loss of the distinguished commander under whom this great victory has been achieved I most sincerely and deeply lament. His transcendent and heroic services will, I am persuaded, exist forever in the recollection of my people, and whilst they tend to stimulate those who come after him to similar exertions, they will prove a lasting source of strength,
1: security and glory to my dominions. Well, thank you everybody for listening to that episode on Trafalgar. It was a bit of a monster, I'm afraid. Once I start talking about Trafalgar, I find it very, very difficult to stop. So thank you for bearing with me. There are more podcasts coming, obviously, over the next few days. I'll be doing another one of these explainer ones on the gunpowder plot, I think Guy Fawkes, in November. Until then, thanks for listening, and make sure you go to historyhit.tv, use the code Trafalgar for your special offer to watch our documentaries on the battle and Nelson's Navy. I feel the hand of history upon our shoulders. All this tradition of ours,
0: our school history, our songs... This part of the
1: history of our country, all work on and finished. Thanks, folks. You've reached the end of another episode. Hope you're still awake. Appreciate your loyalty. Sticking through to the end. If you fancied doing us a favour here at History Hit, I would be incredibly grateful if you would go and wherever you get these pods, give a little rating, five stars, or its equivalent. A review would be great. Please head over there and do that. It really does make a huge difference. It's one of the funny things the algorithm loves to take into account. So please head over there and do that.